So one of the big things that you have to get across and kind of realize is that this is a new way to kind of provide healthcare. Like patients aren't used to it in general. Physicians aren't used to it. So as a physician, you have to kind of allow time for appreciating and incorporating this new technology to your practice. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake Peoples. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Hi, welcome to the Nursery Podcast. Today, we are lucky to be joined by John Ratliff. John Ratliff is a full, prof- full professor of neurosurgery at Stanford University. John is here uh, today to talk to us about telemedicine. Um, welcome to the podcast, John. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Glad to be a part of this. So for those of uh, our listeners who don't really know you, why don't you just give a brief intro as to who you are and how you came to neurosurgery and what your interests are? Uh, sure, Mike. So my name is John Ratliff. Uh, some of you may know me from running the coding courses for the AANS, and I'm also involved with the Councils of State Neurosurgical Societies and also the Washington Committee. Um, I interested in neurosurgery developed when I was in med school in New Orleans. I trained in New Orleans in Dave Klein's program, and I've had, gosh, I guess I'm on my third job now, and I've been at Stanford for nine years now, and uh, very happily uh, working there with Gary Steinberg and with the team at Stanford. It's been a great place. I've developed um, expertise in coding, and I've been our representative for neurosurgery at the RB, RBS Update Committee, the RUC, gosh, for over 10 years now. As the COVID-19 crisis has unfolded, locally, we have tried to transition to telemedicine for accessing our patients and um, for continuing to provide care to our patients. And because of that, I've just kind of quickly became at least a superficial expert in telemedicine, specifically telemedicine coding. I'm happy to be able to share some of that information today as part of this podcast. Right. And just uh, so our audience knows, we've had a, a number of folks like yourself who commit part of their lives as a voluntary activity to defending us against insurance companies to make sure we're represented in government. We had Katie Rico on recently, uh, Joe Chang and Lou Toomey Allen were some of our early guests. So thank you for your service and dedication to what we do as neurosurgeons and some of the vagaries of, of things that people don't want to think about sometimes, but they're very important. So let's go into this telemedicine realm and maybe you could give the audience an introduction into what that really means. I mean, what is telemedicine? Now, very good question. So it's not something that has been a big role, a big part, or even anything significant in most neurosurgical practices. I mean, in general, we need to see our patients. We need to do a physical exam. We need to do a more thorough in-person evaluation. So prior to this, I had a very scant 
understanding of what telemedicine even was. But just basically, telehealth or telemedicine is really any time that you use an electronic means for an exchange of health information, meaning you're not seeing the patient in person. You're using some means of electronic communication and generally a two-way communication, meaning you're um, speaking to the patient and you're immediately getting their reply. Most electronic health portals like Epic, Allscripts, all of the big vendors should have this built in already. Most of the time, patients will access this service through their patient-facing portal. At Stanford, we use Epic. So for Epic, it's My Health. So as a patient, you're going to log into My Health to access a telemedicine visit. And with the COVID-19, I mean, here in California, we have been shelter in place for two weeks now, and it makes it next to impossible for our patients to get to clinic. So for continuity of care, for continuing to run our clinics, and for continuing to provide care to our patients, we are transitioning a huge portion, probably over 75% of our outpatient practice to telemedicine visits. So what, what's that process been like? Has it been a rocky transition or, or smooth? We're very fortunate that some of our neurology colleagues were already working on this and had already kind of developed some of the infrastructure, meaning that at least some of the clinics had started preparing for a telehealth transition. So some of the stuff was already built in Epic. Uh, some of the scripting that's necessary for telehealth had already been developed. And the amazing thing is that we've been able to roll this out essentially throughout the institution over the last like week and a half, which at Stanford is blazing speed. I have never seen anything move this fast at a academic medical center of Stanford size. So of course there have been hiccups and there will continue to be hiccups, but so far, we've been relatively successful with the transition. So tell us a bit, if you could, about some of those hiccups. And, and for those of us at other institutions who will be moving toward more telemedicine visits as well in the near future, what things have you found work best? What things uh, did you find needed correction early? Like, you know, what kind of visits are most amenable to, to the telemedicine tools? Prior to this, telehealth was used for some follow-up visits, but like still really rarely. We would still kind of want our patients to come in. What we have done as we have expanded this program is to do new patient visits, uh, follow-up visits where we're discussing film results, and even talking about surgical scheduling through telehealth. So what are some of the headaches we've ran into? So one of the big things that you have to get across and kind of realize is that this is a new way to kind of provide healthcare. Like patients aren't used to it in general, physicians aren't used to it. So as a physician, you have to kind of allow time for appreciating and incorporating this new technology to your practice. One of the keys is because of that, because this is new, you have to consent the patient for a telehealth visit. So essentially, you're getting a consent 
for doing a clinic visit, which is something we never do. But because telehealth is so new, as you're seeing each of these patients, you really need to go through a formal consent process that you talk through and then have the patient acknowledge that this is a new technology. This is something new. There are new potential problems and new things that you can miss because you're working through a telehealth platform. It's simply, in my opinion, not as good as an in-person clinic visit. But with shelter in place, with the other things that have occurred, at least within our healthcare environment, it's certainly better than nothing. And it gives us a way to maintain contact with our patients. Getting to some of the other issues that you bring up, there are all kinds of like technical problems and systems issues that occur with telehealth visits. You may be dealing with an older patient population using their smartphone who may not know that the camera can flip 180 degrees, meaning that you may not see the patient when they're first coming into my health. You may have to try to talk them through how to hit the little flip button for their like camera. Right. You need to make sure that their microphone is on, that my health has access to their microphone. There are all kinds of like technical issues, which for us, we've been able to kind of offload to our medical assistants in that they will do kind of a wet run with the patient to make sure that the patient's um, portal is functional before you start that telehealth visit. So then when you're actually there as a physician seeing them, hopefully some of those technical headaches have been um, answered already. And if everything fails, like if you just can't get the portal to work, you can always just convert to a phone call and just call the patient and talk to them over the phone. Prior to the new payment changes that CMS incorporated at the beginning of March 2020, in response to the COVID-19 crisis, you would get absolutely no credit for that phone call or essentially next to no credit for that phone call. With the present approach to telehealth that CMS has taken, you will actually get full credit for that clinic visit even if your telehealth portal fails. You just need to document that you tried, you did the best you could, and then you convert it to a phone call and that's okay. You get credit for that. You uh, can go ahead and bill out that clinic visit as a normal face-to-face -face clinic visit and not have to use the little telephone visit codes and G codes that really don't reimburse much. So, John, let me ask you about that because we got a notice through our university that when we do that, we actually have to use the telehealth visit codes, which are significantly reduced from the standard, you know, level one, two, three, four complexity uh, encounters. All right, great question. So your compliance office will probably pick up on the fact that starting on March 6th of 2020, Medicare changed their policy about telehealth. So prior to that, you could use telehealth, but it was for very limited um, areas of coverage, essentially like very rural individuals, people that like couldn't seek out care in person, and for a neurosurgical practice, at least for us, we would almost never bill out telehealth. It just wasn't even worth like the headache to like do. Now, under what's called an 1135 waiver, which is a waiver in the Social Security Act that allows the secretary of, of HHS 
to modify or waive Medicare, Medicaid, and CHIP requirements in times of a national emergency, Medicare essentially waived a lot of the restrictions around telehealth. So at present, Medicare will pay for a telehealth visit at the same rate as an in-person visit. And that's for new patient visits, for outpatient follow-up visits, and also for in-the-hospital-like visits. And the way that Medicare is instructing us to code those out is to code them out just as you would an in-person visit, meaning you're using the standard like new patient visits, like 99202203, et cetera, or the 99211 through 99215 follow-up E&M visits. Now, E&M is not a big part of any neurosurgical practice. At most, it's maybe 25% of what we do. But I think the benefit here is that it, it allows us to continue to maintain contact with our patients. In our environment, we've essentially eliminated elective cases. So we have seen a lot of our spine volume decrease substantially because of our facilities preparing for an influx of patients from COVID-19. But we still have patients with foot drops. We still have patients with severe cervical stenosis, bad myelopathy, who are going to need to have surgery. They're going to get worse if we wait 30 days or greater to do their surgery. So we find that we still have patients that we need to take care of. And of course, for our brain tumor, our skull-based colleagues, our um, colleagues that are dealing with more acute issues, vascular neurosurgery, et cetera, they still need to see their patients. They still need to evaluate these people. Um, even though we're in a crisis, there are still neurosurgical patients that require our care. And by utilizing this E&M approach, like, we're able to continue to provide those services to at least a portion of our patients. So, John, let me ask you about that. So, the, so after you do the telehealth visit, you're going to dictate a note, right, as is typical. You create a note. Is there any different documentation burden to, to bill it out as a regular visit? So whoever's doing the billing out of your institution has to put in a place of service code that's going to denote for Medicare that it's telehealth. So place of service for Medicare is a zero two. So like instead of an inpatient visit, you got to let Medicare know this is telehealth. Now with the new regulations, Medicare doesn't care. They're going to go ahead and pay it out as if it was an in-person visit but they still want to document it as being telehealth. I do right. not know for each and every private payer who is going to move to this same approach to telehealth. Generally, Medicare as kind of the world's largest health insurer. When they set the tone for a given set of policies such as this, most private insurers will follow suit. For a private insurer, you have to put a 95 modifier on your E&M to let the private insurer know that it was a telehealth visit. Otherwise, you bill it out and you document it just as if it was an in-person visit. How, how, are, uh, how are patients responding to these changes in your clinic practice? Are, are they, uh, you know, you mentioned some of them having difficulty with the technology, but are they amenable to 
you know, visiting with their doctor virtually? So fortunately in Northern California, people have really taken seriously the shelter in place recommendations. And I mean, our malls are all closed. Like there are no restaurants. I mean, I'm sure this is playing out like all over the country, but um, the populace here has been very respectful of Governor Newsom's like order to like shelter in place. And for patients that are following up after surgery, for patients that have like an urgent neurosurgical condition or an urgent need for evaluation for a physician, I mean, I think they're scared. So I think having something like this that gives them an opportunity and an avenue to seek out healthcare is very reassuring. So yes, there may be headaches and yes, there may be a learning curve on the patient's part, but I think the patients are also happy they have this opportunity where they don't have to travel from Fresno to Palo Alto to get seen by their spine surgeon. They can do this remotely. Um, and most importantly, people are a little bit worried about coming to healthcare centers and they're worried about the potential exposure they will have, especially with our, a lot of our patients being a bit older and in the demographic where the COVID-19 seems to have the most uh, severe effect, they're very happy to be able to reach out to their doctor remotely. And yeah, their headaches, but they, in my experience, have been willing to accept those headaches for the greater good of kind of maintaining contact or initiating contact uh, with a healthcare provider. You know, you met, you mentioned the patients being happy to save such a long trip to come into the clinic. And you also talked before about how astonished you were with how rapidly Stanford and Academic Center was able to make these adaptations and change their practice. Um, one of the most interesting things that's been discussed in the past few weeks in the States has been, you know, everyone's saying, oh, we finally learned how many of those meetings could be emails, you know, seeing that business could get by and life could go on with people meeting virtually. So considering all of that, looking forward from this point, uh, how much do you think we're learning about, you know, the extent to which clinic practice and, and the outpatient side of things can be safely and effectively done virtually? And given that, do you think we'll maintain some of this as a significant portion of practice within neurosurgery? I think that's an excellent question. I think there is a lot that we are learning from this process. I think right now it's a new technology. People are essentially forced to adopt it um, because of the crisis that we're in. And yes, I think it may be transformative for some aspects of our practice, meaning that we may be able to adopt a new normal where a patient gets their post-operative x-rays at home, sends them to us via an online portal, like LifeImage or some other online means of sharing DICOM images, and then connects with us for their follow-up visit via a telehealth appointment or a telemedicine appointment. So this may become, again, the new normal. But I also see in my experience with telehealth, some of the times we're just using this as kind of a screening tool. And if we see a patient whose exam sounds worrisome via the telehealth visit, well, then we're going to bring them in. And I'm going to bring them in for an actual real physical exam 
which I still feel is much more valuable and much more impactful for choosing a um, course of care than talking to somebody about their symptoms via an electronic portal. So I don't know that we're ever going to get away from the physical exam as being an integral part of evaluating our patients. But I do think we're going to learn a lot from this uh, present experiment that we are taking with incorporating telehealth into our practices. Yeah, a lot of the art of medicine is in the healing touch. And, and we were taught a lot of that in medical school. I think there's a real impact of that. I've always personally felt that communicating in person, even doing these podcasts in person versus online like this, is quite different. And I would say, you know, the, the visual interaction is important. Then you go to a phone interaction. One step down from that is an email. We all know the situations where the emails lead to vast miscommunication or text because of lack of context. Have you run into situations or can you give pointers to our listeners about how when you're communicating via telehealth, mostly the audiovisual part, what are the sort of do's and don'ts in that interaction with the patient? I think that's a fantastic question. And I don't know that I have enough experience to even answer it. I mean, it's a great question. I totally agree with you that a lot of what we do is that healing touch, that human interaction, that um, the way I phrase it to my trainees is that you want to make sure that the patient understands that you're becoming their partner in trying to get better. And you're going to work with them to try to achieve their goals of improving whatever ailment it is that they're seeking treatment for. Maybe it's myelopathy, maybe it's a foot drop, maybe it's a spinal cord tumor, I mean, whatever. But the patient has to see you're going to be there with them. You're going to be their partner as they move through this cycle in their lives that is going to be extremely, extremely disruptive. The end is not going to be able to quickly develop that same degree of connection over a grainy like smartphone app. It's just not the same as meeting someone in person. So I agree completely with what you're saying, Mike. There are other like unique problems to telehealth. And number one being the physical exam. Like how are you going to assess sensation? You can't really check the reflexes. Um, there are things with telehealth that are just like, again, not going to be of the same quality and of the same intensity as an inpatient visit. And I think answering your question, Mike, we need to do this for like three to six months. We need to see like how things are progressing. We need to see what those limitations are and then see how uh, we're going to answer them. But I still agree with your key point. The healing touch, that person-to-person interaction, it will be very difficult to ever replicate that through a telehealth portal. At least in my opinion, maybe I'm a Luddite and maybe I'm just not picking up on this new technology as fast as some people. But um, I worry about the limitations of the technology for just the kind of human to human interaction that you're describing. Great, great. And I'm going to wrap up by just making a promotion for this webinar you're having. It's for the AANS and it's uh, from the AANS, I should say. It's for telehealth. You'll be leading it. It's going to be this Thursday April 2nd, 2020. It's at 7 p.m. Eastern time. I believe that's 4 p.m. your time in California, right? 
and it's free. It's free to both uh, AANS members and non-members. And if you want to get registered for it, if you didn't get the email for it, go to the AANS.org website and you will be able to find this. It's a, it's a webinar on telehealth should be for about an hour or so with some great guests. Thanks for the plug for that, Mike. That'll be a very quick and hopefully thorough review of what physicians need to know for telehealth billing and for setting up their side of a telehealth portal. I'll be faculty for it. Mike, I think you're going to join us. We're going to have Clement Shermer from Geisinger. He's done a lot of work on telehealth for stroke care. He's going to be updating that for the new regulations that just came into effect um, earlier this month. And uh, we're trying to get Lutumi Allen also, one of our colleagues from the Barrow in Phoenix. He's got a lot of real-world experience with telehealth already just over the last couple of weeks. The whole idea of the webinar is just try to get a quick sharing of information about this new billing approach and the new availability of telehealth for connecting with our patients. And again, it'll be 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on this Thursday. And there should be an e-blast going out about it, hopefully this weekend or the latest Monday. Great. Well, Dr. Ratliff, thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast. I think this episode has had a lot of useful information for everyone from practicing physicians, you know, making this transition in their clinic to even patients who are, are going to start uh, getting invitations for virtual visits rather than coming in in person. So again, thank you so much for sharing all of your valuable insights and experience with us. And thank you guys for the opportunity. Really enjoyed being part of it. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.